we're going to continue our series, the title of which you see on the screen. You've got questions. God has answers. Welcome, everyone. Special welcome to those of you who might be here for the first time. This is our fourth of eight weeks on this series. And in those eight weeks, each of the eight, we are answering a particular question, a common objection that people have to Christianity. Today, we're answering the question at the top of page one in the notes you should have received on the way in. Why does God allow suffering? Why does God allow suffering? So you need a set of the notes to follow along. Does everybody have that? If you do not, we have some guys roaming the aisles to get them out to you. Looks like you guys did a perfect job. Thank you very much. And I will mention what the other four that we have remaining uh, in the next four weeks will be at the end of our time together. But today, why does God allow suffering? And I should warn you ahead of time, it's uh, these eight pages are a bit of heavy sledding. Uh, it's a heavy issue. And I'll do my best to, as we read through it, uh, then stop and give explanations so that I hope at the end you'll have an understanding of what the Bible teaches about this uh, important issue. So top of page one, Elie Wiesel trusted in God. As a boy, he believed that Yahweh cared deeply for him and his people. All of that changed in the grueling death camps of Nazi Germany. Elie was a Jew, subjected to horrific atrocities of Auschwitz. His faith was shattered as his God seemed to sit idly by while countless victims suffered through the darkest evils imaginable at the hands of wicked men. In the preface to his memoir, he writes, In the beginning there was faith, which is childish, trust, which is vain, and delusion, which is dangerous. We believed in God, trusted in man, and lived with the illusion that every one of us has been entrusted with a sacred spark from the Shekinah's flame, that every one of us carries in his eyes and in his soul a reflection of God's image. That was the source, if not the cause, of all our ordeals. We trusted in God, and he failed us. If such a God exists, Elie Wiesel determined that he does not. And so that was the source, if not the cause, of all of our ordeals, he says. How could a good God exist in a world filled with such mindless cruelty? In the face of crippling evil, many have concluded with Wiesel that God is dead. If there truly was a good and powerful God, he would not never permit such suffering and pain. Therefore, since evil exists, God does not, God cannot, in the minds then of, of many. So what are the alternatives? Well, to say God is dead, there is no God, is actually no solution. First of all, the so-called problem of evil, and that's what we are dealing with when we talk about God allowing suffering, what theologians and philosophers have debated for centuries under that title, the problem of evil. But it's been used by detractors as proof that God cannot exist. God cannot be all good, all powerful, and allow evil, they say. But rejection of God gives no solution to the problem of evil. And this was pointed out by Douglas Wilson in a debate that I've mentioned to you in the past Christian pastor in Idaho, Douglas Wilson, uh, debated several times uh, the well-known atheist, now deceased uh, as of a few years ago, Christopher Hitchens. And Christopher Hitchens uh, had written a book, his last book before he died, was uh, God is Not Good. 
How Religion Poisons Everything. That was the subtitle of his book. So they debated. And you can find that debate or I can send it to you if you email me, info at cbctrenton.com. That goes to me and I will send you a PDF of the entire debate. But uh, in that debate, Douglas Wilson kept asking Christopher Hitchens, you say God is not good, so I want to know where you get your definition of good. As an atheist, how do you know what's good? Where does that come from? And you can read the debate on your own. It's very it's lengthy. They had six back and forth uh, with this. But Hitchens really evaded the, the question until Wilson kept trying to pin him down, kept trying to pin him down. And Wilson says this, I've been asking you to provide a warrant for morality given atheism. And you have mostly responded with assertions that atheists can make what some people call moral choices. Well, sure. But what I've been after is what rational warrant they can give for calling one choice moral and another choice not moral. You finally appeal to innate human solidarity. So do you see what Hitchens did? He said, well, the reason we here's okay, here's how we know what's good. It's based on innate human solidarity. There's just some stuff sort of naturally within us, and all of us believe this, so we're solidified in it. There's a solidarity about believing these these things. We have these things in common. That was what his answer ended up being. You finally appeal to innate human solidarity, a phrase that prompted a series of pointed questions from me. In response, you now tell me, Uh, You now tell us that we have an innate predisposition to both good and wicked behavior, but we're still stuck. What I want to know still is what warrant you have for calling some behaviors good and others wicked. If both are innate, what distinguishes them? What could be wrong with just flipping a coin? With regard to your retort that my, quote, talent for needless complexity has simply gotten me God's coexistence with evil, I reply that I would rather have my God and the problem of evil then you're no God and evil, no problem. What he's saying is that's the logical conclusion of an atheist's approach because you can't give a foundation for, uh, certainly a transcendent foundation, for what is right and wrong, what is good and what is evil. And as a result, when we talk about evil, which everybody must, even Christopher Hitchens, God is not good, what do we mean by good? Religion poisons everything, so religion is bad. But on what basis are you making those judgments? And so they must finally come to, okay, there's evil, no problem. But the truth is, we're better off dealing with the problem of evil. Bottom of page one, atheists, that is, have no basis for determining what is good and what is evil. So therefore, they have no grounds for charging theists with having a problem with evil. Nevertheless, although that's insightful... And I think helpful, in fact, you see the footnote there for the Christian apologist C.S. Lewis identified that observation as a crucial turning point in his own personal journey from atheism to Christianity. So it is very helpful to a lot of people, but it doesn't resolve the tension within the theistic worldview and is therefore not a viable ultimate response to the problem. As helpful as it is, it simply proves that the presence of evil is a problem for everybody. It's a problem for the theists, that is, those of us who believe in God, and the atheists, those who don't, alike. The responsible atheist raises a valid argument if he'll limit the problem to that of the theist's internally inconsistent worldview, or what he thinks is the internally inconsistent worldview. For example, if the atheist, atheist rests his defense against 
the existence of God in his belief in the objectivity of objective reality of evil, his argument is self-contradictory and therefore invalid. So if Christopher Hitchens wants to rest it on that, his own objective view of the reality of evil, well, he can't support that. However, if he presents his argument against God by entering for the sake of argument into our worldview and contending that our belief in God and evil are logically inconsistent, well, then we have to deal with that. And so that's what we're going to have to try to do in the pages then that that follow, is even though the atheist has really no basis for complaint, he can say, all right, let's look at what you claim to believe about God and who God is, and how are these things then consistent with one another? So, does the problem of evil contradict Christian claims about the character of God? So first, what is this problem of evil? Well, the most poignant statement of it is as follows. There exist horrendous evils that an all-powerful, all-knowing, perfectly good being would have no justifying reason to permit. Second, an all-powerful, all-knowing, perfectly good being would not permit an evil unless he had a justifying reason to permit it. Therefore, God does not exist. There can be no justification for the evils that we see in the world If you really do have an all-powerful, all-knowing, perfectly good being, he wouldn't do that. But we do see these evils in the world, therefore there is no such being. That's the the idea. Now, in light of this argument, prominent atheist and philosopher William Rowe concludes that the facts about evil in our world provide good reason to think that God does not exist. But in responding to arguments like this, Pastor Tim Keller of Redeemer Presbyterian in New York notes That the weakness of the argument is the assertion that the evil which appears to be pointless is, in fact, pointless. Due to the finiteness, that is, the limitations of mankind and the incomprehensibility of God and his ways, this is a premise that can't be substantiated. Ironically, the accusation of actual gratuitous evil goes beyond verifiable fact and so is founded on a blind faith of the highest order. As meaningless as particular evils may seem, it can't be proven that the appearance is the reality. Although this statement of the problem raises legitimate concerns, this method cannot be regarded as compelling proof against the existence of God. What's being said there is this. Look, there can be no reason, that's what's stated in the bullet points, justifying particular kinds of evil. And what Keller is saying is that Due to our own limitations, the mere fact that it appears to be without purpose and without point doesn't mean that it actually is without purpose and point. And you have to be able to prove that. We're actually going to show some things about God which actually make that untrue from a biblical Christian worldview. All right, and we also need to make sure we understand the two kinds of evil that there are, two kinds of evil. Top of page three, the two categories of evil in the universe are identified as moral and natural. The former, moral, is the sin that people commit. Murder, rape, neglect, deceit, and so on. The latter, natural evil, is the amoral. Those are the events and circumstances that come about in nature that cause suffering or pain for God's creatures. Things like earthquakes, hurricanes, drought, and so on. But in Genesis chapter three where the Bible records the beginning of human evil, 
in the garden, Genesis 3, verses 17 through 19, Moses, who wrote Genesis, presents natural evil as the result of moral evil. That is due to Adam's, and in turn our, because Adam was our representative, we would have done what he did, is what the Bible teaches. So due to our rebellion, Adam's rebellion and disobedience in the garden, all nature bears the weight of the curse. So the natural evil that we see is actually the result of the moral evil. So even though you got those two categories, they still come down to moral evil, things that we have done, and the consequences of that include the upheavals in the environment and all of that. Genesis 3 teaches that the ground was cursed as a result of the sin of, of Adam and Eve. And in Romans chapter 8, we have it referenced in parentheses there for you, but Romans chapter 8, Verse 19 says this, the creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed for the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. The whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. So all of that natural groaning of the earth and the environment, the creation, goes back to the sin of the first man and the, and the first woman. So the quote there from John, theologian John Frame, Scripture gives us an explicit answer to the problem of natural evil. Natural evil is a curse brought on the world because of moral evil. that functions as punishment to the wicked and as a means of discipline for those who are righteous by God's grace. It also reminds us of the cosmic dimensions of sin and redemption. Sin brought death to the human race, but also to the universe over which man was to rule. So in light of the clear teachings within the scriptures, the presence of natural evil presents no logical problem for the Christian. Moral evil presents the larger challenge for the Christian worldview, for the Christian belief in God. So we'll, we'll deal with that in this paper. Moral evil. Now, before we move on then to God's, God's character, notice that already we've been referring to Scripture to tell us where evil came from. Genesis chapter 3, Romans chapter 8, the quote from John Frame, he starts out by referring to Scripture and what Scripture teaches. And likewise, we're going to use Scripture to determine what God is like. In the next section, in the middle of page 3, we're going to look at God's character. But in order to know God's character, that is what God is like, we're going to use Scripture for that. To see what God is like from a Christian standpoint. And not only to see what God is like, but to see what God is doing in his, his world. Now, I, I point that out because people often argue against God without properly defining who God is. And we're going to see where they commonly go wrong in their definition of who, of who God is. But for now, just for now, understand that God is not who we make him up to be. God is who he tells us he is. And in fact, we're dependent upon him to tell us who he is and what he is like. Otherwise, we just have to make it up. And people do. This past Sunday night, we had uh, our periodic, what we call table talk. That's a time where uh, the pastoral staff invites the college-age uh, young men 
to meet with us and just talk about life and ask any questions they want to ask about theology, philosophy, decision-making, girls, whatever, whatever they want to talk about, okay? We'll try to help them. And then the young ladies met, meet at our house with our pastor's wives and do the, the same thing. They talk about boys, okay? But in the course of our conversation last week, one of the young men was talking about uh, a coworker, I believe, or a friend uh, that he was witnessing to, he was giving the gospel to, and this friend presented a very bizarre worldview, a very bizarre perspective on how the world came to be and it just had all kinds of intricacies uh, related to it. And it was hard to keep it all straight. And the question was, what do you do with, some, what do you do with somebody like that? And I related a, a story about when I was a uh, young adult, my early 20s, I had my first computer programming job then, and my boss found out that I was a Christian and uh, going to be starting seminary. And that was just an oddity for him. You know, he had heard about people like me, but he had never actually seen one. So there I was working for him. And Bob would come and talk to me a lot. He would talk to me about big issues. But then one day, Bob, my boss, gave me his view of the world. And he described it. He said, uh, I believe that there, each of the planets had its own God. And that there was a war between the gods of all of these planets. And the one we call the God of Earth won. And I was, I'm 23 and I'm listening to him spin this yarn. And so some of you left. I tried not to do that. He's my boss, okay? He signs my check. <laughs> But, he, but he's saying that, and I'm also thinking about what, what do you say to something like that? And so when he finished, I said, well, uh, Bob, that could have happened. And he was surprised at that answer. Oh, it could have? Really? <laughs> you think so? And I said, well, sure, in theory. But the question is, how will we know what happened? You see, at the time, there were like 6 billion people in the world. I think there's over 7 now. But there are 6 billion people in the world. And the truth is, each of the 6 billion people in the world, if we don't have any statement from God, can all make it up. So sure, yours is as good as anybody else's. Unless God has spoken. Unless God has told us. And what I'm telling you here is, if we're going to know about God, God has to tell us. If we're going to know what God is like and know what God's purposes are, then God has to tell us. And we have referred to Scripture and we're going to refer to Scripture then because it's necessary. I call that the revelational imperative. I just say that because I think it's a cool phrase. Revelational imperative. But revelation means to make known. The Bible is the revelation of God's character and his will. It's the making known of who he is and what he is doing and what his purposes are in his world. And it's imperative, it's absolutely necessary that we have that if we're going to know God and what he is doing. So that's what I mean by the revelational imperative or the necessity of revelation, the necessity of scripture. So middle of page three, God's character. Four attributes of God are especially relevant to the problem of moral evil. His omniscience, that is his complete knowledge. His omnisapience, that's his complete wisdom, omnipotence, complete power. And omnibenevolence, his complete goodness. So let's look at each of those uh, relatively quickly because they all do bear upon this question. 
omniscience, God's uh, complete knowledge. Omniscience ascribes to God an infinite and perfect knowledge of all things, both actual and possible. In addition, he knows all events because he sovereignly ordained them. Nothing happens outside of God's knowledge, decree, and divine sanction. Not only does he see the future, he designs it, working out, according to Ephesians 1, everything, according to the counsel of his will. Thus, it necessarily follows that nothing exists or operates outside of God's purview. Not only does God decree the good, he also decrees to allow the bad. All right, so let's stop and talk about that. Omniscience, complete knowledge. And most people, when we think of God, we think of him that way. God knows everything. He has complete knowledge. But in terms of the relationship of that knowledge to what happens in the world, many people think of it this way. They think of omniscience as prescience or pre-science. Science means knowledge. Omniscience then means all knowledge. Prescience means prior knowledge. So they think of God's omniscience just as Knowing stuff in advance. God knew before the world was created what would happen in the created world. That's all true. But it's not just that. It's not just pre-knowledge. Let me give you an illustration. If I were a gambler betting on the horses, I don't. But if I were, and if that's how I made my living then I suppose I would be glad to have a cohort in crime who would tell me how the race has been fixed and who's going to win. And so as I go to put my money down at the window, I've got my friend who shows up and says, Seabiscuit in the seventh. And I put my money on Seabiscuit because this thing has been, has been fixed and I win a, bu- a bunch of money. Now, in that illustration, how do I know what's going to happen beforehand? Somebody told me. Somebody had to inform me. Or uh, think about a movie that's produced and directed. You know, how do you know what's going to happen at the movie? Well, you don't know until you get to the end. We don't, unless somebody tells you and spoils it for you. Spoiler alert, right? But how does God know what's going to happen beforehand? Did he get a hot tip? If so, from whom? Did he watch the movie? Did he get a preview of the movie? No, because God would be the director and the producer of the movie, would he not? So do you see when we think about the knowledge of God and we think about the knowledge of God is only him knowing beforehand and looking. This is what Christians say a lot of times. Well-meaning people, if they say he looked down through time and he saw what was going to happen and then you got God reacting to what was going to happen. So God is being informed somehow. God's watching it passively happen. He's watching the movie. And he's saying, oh, that's what's going to happen. And then I'm going to jump in at certain times when that happens so that I can kind of counteract that. And none of that is the knowledge of God. The reason it's said the way it is here. That not only in the middle of that paragraph, not only does God see the future, he designs it. Is because it could be no other way with God. There's no one to inform him. There's no one to make the movie. He makes the whole thing. He's the producer and the director of the whole film. 
When the Academy Awards are given out at the end of human history, guess who gets all the awards? So that's what we mean there. Omniscience is not prescience. It's not just knowing beforehand. He knows because he designed. Last paragraph. Many theists, many who believe in God, reject this understanding of God's sovereign omniscience, concluding that it makes God responsible for evil and casts a doubt on his goodness and love. In an effort to resolve that and absolve God of any wrongdoing, some have thought to adjust the meaning of omniscience, effectively emptying it of any significance. A fitting example is reflected in the writings of Harold Kushner in his popular book, When Bad Things Happen to Good People, he concludes that, quote, God wants the righteous to live peaceful, happy lives, but sometimes even he cannot bring that about. It is difficult even for God to keep cruelty and chaos from claiming their innocent victims. In an effort to maintain God's goodness and love, Kushner compromises his knowledge and power. According to Kushner's theological system, God is not responsible for evil because God is powerless to prevent it, to restrain it, or end it. Now, although that resolves the problem of evil, <laughs> okay, the reason that, here's the solution. God can't do anything about it. It does so at great and terrible cost. As theologian Wayne Grudem says, if evil came into the world in spite of the fact that God did not intend it and did not want it to be there, then what guarantee do we have that there will not be more and more evil that he does not intend and he does not want? And what guarantee do we have that he will be able to use it for his purposes, or even that he can triumph over it. Surely this is an undesirable alternative position. Rather than creating trouble for the believer, a proper understanding of God's sovereignty should bring profound confidence and peace, friends. For even in the face of the greatest evils, the Christian can be assured that God remains in control. As powerful and dominant as evil may appear to be, it can never step outside the bounds of God's sovereign design. Do you all you remember the story of Job and all the evil things that happened to him? But see, the, the key to that whole story is in the very first chapter. The very first chapter. I preached through that several years ago. Very first chapter. Satan comes and the Bible says presents himself to God. And you read through that first chapter, Satan is under the control of God. Thanks be to God. The Bible teaches Satan is the God of this world, that God that he is inflicting evil in the world in all sorts of ways. But the Bible also teaches that Satan is on God's leech. And he can go no further than God allows him to do. And in fact, in Job chapter 1, that's exactly what happened. God gave him permission to do what he did with Job. Satan exists and only is doing what he does by the permission of an almighty God. That's why we can be assured Satan will be defeated exactly as the Bible says. Martin Luther said, even, I'm quoting, even the devil is God's devil. A lot of people think, you know, you got these two equal powers. Uh-uh. Not in Christianity. You don't have two equal powers. There is no power equal to the true and living God. And every other power is subordinate to him, including Satan. That should, that should help you. Because you know evil will be defeated and you know evil can only do what God in his sovereign plan allows to be done. All right, middle of page four. So there's God's omniscience. There's also God's omnisapience or his wisdom, complete wisdom. 
This is directly tied to his knowledge, possessing a full and perfect understanding of all facts, both possible and actual, in infinite wisdom. God applies the greatest means in order to bring about the highest ends. Notice the word applies. If you were here first hour for our worship hour, it was preaching from James chapter 1. If anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. And we defined wisdom there as the application of knowledge. It's applying what you know. And that's exactly what God's doing here. What does God know? He knows everything. And he applies what he knows perfectly to bring about the highest ends. The necessary implication of God's wisdom is that our world, with all its evils and imperfections, look at this next line, is the best of all possible worlds. If God is really all wise, then everything that he has allowed to happen is the best possible of all worlds. Although it may not be apparent to our limited minds, it must be affirmed that this world is the best possible means of accomplishing the greatest possible ends because that's what wisdom does. And the Bible teaches that's what God is. The character and the infinite wisdom of the creator demand that conclusion. His omniscience, his omnisapience, his knowledge, his wisdom. But now bottom of page four, his omnipotence, his complete power. Although there are several passages in scripture that seem to suggest that God's power is unlimited, the Bible explicitly states that God cannot do everything. So stay with this. Because that's a common misconception as well. When we think of God being all-powerful and, and you ask someone to define God's omnipotence, they would say, well, he can do everything. You know, that's mostly right, but there are some very important caveats to that, thankfully. Can you think of something God cannot do? There's a footnote that tells you some of the things he can't do. He can't lie. That's a good thing, isn't it? Did you know God couldn't lie if he wanted to? And the reason is, is because it's outside his nature, his holy nature to lie. So when we say that God is all-powerful, it doesn't mean he can do anything. It means, more narrowly, he can do anything that's consistent with his nature and purposes. God can do anything that's consistent with who he is and his purpose. And we have that for you. Instead, bottom of page four, God can do all things consistent with his nature and purpose. God can only do that which he wants to do. The scope of his power is not limited by any external restraints. So there is no one who can tie God's hands and limit his power that way. He's only limited by his own internal nature. God walks in conformity with his laws and standards, not because he's subservient to them, but because those laws and standards that he has given are actually a reflection of who he is. Now, as it relates to the problem of evil, one of the things that God cannot do is actualize a contradiction. He can know what a contradiction is like he knows everything in theory, but he can't actually bring a contradiction about because it's contrary to his nature. Now, you're going to see here, if you're still awake, how that's related to the problem of evil. We keep reading. He cannot, for example, create a square circle or make two plus two equal five, for such a contradiction would be in violation of his nature. Have you ever had anybody say, can God make a, a rock too heavy for him to carry? Have you ever... Anybody say that? So can God make a... It's one of those things. Can God make a rock to heaven? And the idea is, if you say uh, no, well, then they say God is uh, God is not all-powerful. That. 
But, you know, I say no. And they say, ah, why? And I say, because he's not stupid. (laughs) Okay, it violates the nature of God. But what they're trying to do is say, you say God can do everything. But the truth is we don't say God can do everything. We only say God can do those things that are consistent with his nature and making rocks too heavy for him to carry or squaring a circle and all of that are not. Understanding God's then all power, his omnipotence within these parameters sets the course for addressing this faulty assumption that, quote, a holy, good, omnipotent being would eliminate evil completely. Theologian Charles Feinberg argues, when presented with a decision of creating a world like ours or a world without evil, God had to choose between one or the other. The two are mutually contradictory. So God couldn't do both. You see why this thing now about God's omnipotence being only what he can do within his nature is important because this is one of the claims that's made. Well, God should have made a world in a particular way, but he couldn't do both. If he removes evil, he cannot also create the best of all possible worlds. Since evil exists, the logical conclusion is that it plays a vital role in the existence of this best possible world. So a world without evil would be a world less than best. And since God cannot create both a world without evil and the best of all possible worlds, that is, actualize a contradiction, then it's rightly concluded he is not guilty of failing to do both of those. So requiring God to do both of those and then claiming, well, if he's all-powerful, he can do both of those, misunderstands what his omnipotence is. It's only within the limits of his internal nature. And then lastly, his complete goodness, his omnibenevolence. In order for the Christian worldview to be a logical contradiction, it must be proven that the goodness of God necessitates the eradication of all evil. If that could be demonstrated, then the presence of evil would nullify the goodness of an omnipotent deity. According to this interpretation, a God that's capable of removing evil, yet unwilling to do that, is himself evil. As compelling as that might appear, it contains a deficient interpretation of the goodness of God. Because although God in his goodness is opposed to evil, it doesn't necessarily follow that he must eliminate it. Here's an illustration. Good parents seek to protect their children from as much pain and suffering as possible, but never at the expense of their child's own welfare. No good parents would refuse necessary medical care for his child in an effort to spare him the pain of the surgeon's scalpel, nor would he neglect corrective discipline simply to make the child's life more comfortable. As will be illustrated, God in his infinite wisdom uses even the darkest of evil for the good of his children and the glory of his name. Now, I want to stop there, spend a a few minutes Yikes, time is hastening. Just to remind you of God doing that, doing that in biblical history, doing that in secular history. You're familiar with some of these? Early on in your Bible, second book of the Bible, Exodus, you have the confrontation between Moses and Pharaoh. And Moses is sent by God to say to Pharaoh, let my people go. But the people were there for 430 years in slavery prior to that confrontation. And that brought about the glory of God as he did these miraculous things and brought the most powerful ruler in the world to his knees before the true and living God. God had this good purpose in that 
and to then redeem these people, to bring them out of slavery in Egypt, and then to make these people a nation, and ultimately out of these people to bring us the Messiah, the Lord Jesus, as part of their lineage. He has this purpose to do all of this, but he starts this whole thing hundreds of years earlier, back in the first book of the Bible with a guy named Joseph. And you remember the story of Joseph, and Joseph is sinned against by his brothers, and he ends up through a series of circumstances that God is in control of, that he winds up in a prominent position in Egypt, in Pharaoh's court, and his brothers end up, and his father, they all end up coming to Egypt to get food in a, in a famine. Now, here's why I remind you of all that. Did you ever think about how all those Israelites were in Egypt to be enslaved in the first place? The only reason the exodus happened 430 years later is because Joseph happened. God used that whole thing to set up and bring about what he was going to do many years later, hundreds of years later, in fact, through Moses and in humbling Pharaoh and then ultimately hundreds of years in the future bringing about the Messiah. God does that in secular history. He did it with Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great died at the age of 32. Am I right? 32? Thanks. But God used Alexander the Great. God used him to spread Greek culture throughout the world. Make the Greek language the common language of the Roman Empire, the Roman Empire that came just after so that at the time Christianity was founded and Jesus came, there was a common language throughout the empire. Your New Testament is written in Greek because of Alexander. God uses Alexander. God uses Caesar Augustus. Luke chapter 2 in your New Testament, in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should participate in a census, should be taxed. And so each family had to go to the town of their lineage. And so Mary and Joseph go to Joseph's uh, ancestral home in Bethlehem. They go from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Why? Because hundreds of years before, God had said the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem in Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. God used Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus wasn't a Christian. Caesar Augustus doesn't know anything about this, but God's using every one of those. And you could just pile those on. I don't have time. But understand this, friends. Jonathan Edwards, the greatest theologian America has ever produced, said that God has the ability to look through two lenses at every event. We only have one lens. We've got the narrow lens. So we can only see what's happening, see the effects that's happening of it. God can see that. But God has the widest possible lens as well. And he sees that thing in connection to every other thing. And he knows precisely what he is doing to bring about even hundreds of years before, frankly, even before he created the world. Bottom of page five. So, evil and the greatest good, or greatest glory. God uses evil to communicate the fullest manifestation of himself to his image bearers. Charles Hodge, theologian, observes that, quote, there could be no manifestation of God's mercy without misery or his grace and justice if there were no sin. As the heavens declare the glory of God, so he has devised the plan of redemption. 
Ephesians 3.10, to the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God. So evil is a necessary means by which God reveals aspects of himself to his creation because without evil, mankind would know nothing of God's patience, his forgiveness, his mercy, and his grace. All right. Now, I really wish I had time to do the remainder of that page, but you can read it on your own. Turn to, if you would, page 8. Page 8. Ultimately, what this issue then of the problem of evil, evil in the Christian perspective on God, the biblical view of God, ultimately what this comes down to, is an accusation against the character of God. So people mischaracterize God as we saw earlier, what his omnipotence is, what's necessitated by him being omnibenevolent, he would have to do X, Y, and Z. So it's, it's a question about, sometimes an attack, often a question about the character of God. And in the pages that we've given you, you have a, a cogent defense of what the... Bible teaches about who God is and how he uses evil for his purposes and suffering for his purposes. But if, you know, you want to simplify that, then do what's in the middle of page 8. Look to Jesus. Now, here's why I say that. Notice, the problem of evil ultimately devolves to a question about the character of God. While there is no contradiction in what the Bible teaches about God's activities, there is mystery due to our limitations. However, God has definitively demonstrated what he is like in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, which should result in God receiving any benefit of any doubt you have. If you, even, if you have some, the God who uses and overrules evil, now notice this, also became man and experienced that evil himself. He did so for our good and his glory. Whatever questions may remain regarding the problem of evil, God has shown himself in Jesus to be sovereign and loving simultaneously, especially with his work on the cross. And this is what you have in Romans 3. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this for the purpose of being just. That is, he's carrying out justice on sin. He's a holy God and he must do that. He must, it's not, he chooses to judge sin. God's nature is such that he must judge sin. But God's nature is not only just, but it's also loving. And so this loving God who must judge sin wants to do it in the most loving way possible. And that's why it says, so that he could be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. You see, our justification, our right standing before God came through God himself coming as man and experiencing the evil that he uses in order to display his glory in his world. And we, if we have come to faith in Jesus, we are all the eternal beneficiaries of that. So God has done both of those, both of those for us. All right. Now, next week. On the back uh, of your 
handout, we have some announcements. I want to mention those. But next week, we're going to be looking at the question, is Jesus the only way to God? The week after that, can anyone know for sure he's going to heaven? Why are there so many hypocrites in the church? And then the last one, isn't the church just a man-made institution? That's what's coming up the next four weeks. If you look on the back with these dates, this coming Saturday is our Enchanted Trails event for uh, children from 5 to 7 here at the building. Uh, we will have hundreds and hundreds of kids coming through here. And if you have uh, elementary age kids, then uh, bring them. They'll have a great time. 5 to 7. Our next baptism is November the 11th. If you want to be considered for baptism, get a one-page application at the Information Center desk that's out in the lobby. You fill that out, turn that into them, they'll get it to me, and we'll go from there. You see the ladies, a Christmas social, men's breakfast, our adult fellowship. But one thing that's not on there is November the 25th. November the 25th is the week after we end this series. And during this hour, starting that week for four weeks, we have our next installment of our periodic newcomers orientation. So those who are new to the church, we three times a year have this four-week segment where we give an orientation during this hour. I lead that in a classroom during this hour, and then other guys in our church teach this class during those four weeks. So if you're new, mark that November the 25th, and then the three weeks following that during this 11 o'clock hour, we will have our newcomer's orientation, and I would love to have you as part of that class. Let's pray and ask ask God to go with us. Father, thank you for gathering us and allowing us to be here and to think about these uh, eternal matters and these important matters. They have impact upon the way we see our world. Lord, they have impact on the way we experience our situations. Because how we experience what we go through depends on how we view you. Lord, we thank you for giving us light about who you are and what your purposes are. Thank you for giving us Holy Scripture so we can see your character there. And we can see then how what you tell us about who you are and your purposes then comes to bear on all the things that you are orchestrating in your world. Lord, our minds are are limited. and These things are, are often too great for us. But Lord, we can focus our minds upon your character when we look at the Lord Jesus. We look at God come as man. We look at the reason for which he came. We look at what he accomplished. We look at what he went through and the suffering and the death that he died. Though he had done no wrong, he experienced this evil himself. And so, Lord, any doubts that we might have about your character should dissolve at the foot of the cross of Jesus. Help us then to glory in the cross. Help us this week to go and in the midst of our difficulties, help us to see you there. You have something to do with everything that's going on in your world. May that be a comfort to your people. May we then glorify you in the way we experience and in the way we praise you within it. Grant us safety this week and bring us back together next Lord's Day. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.